You'd think the sky would run out of water, but it won't. It just keeps coming down. I need someone to marvel at the breath escaping from me. Do you have a natural resource you prefer to exploit? Does someone think of you and turn the channel? How would you ever know? Have you ever zoned out during Downton Abbey? I'm certain of something I'd prefer not to tell you about. Slow down, you say, but I can already see my breath and it's only October. Walking with you is making everything watery and spazzed out. Like a movie about sex, where I have sex, and people are all like, he's amazing, we really like his sex style. But I digress, will you please stand up? When called upon to tell the audience how wonderful I was in my best moments, like someone in senior management, delegating things and being sure of everything but how to stop. I promise I'll make this up to you. I'll write your name on the menu board. And people will come into the store, all expectant of you. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is You'd Think the Sky Would Run Out of Water by Todd Colby. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. If you're having difficulty, there's a link to a copy down below in the description. Todd Colby is a jack of all trades and arguably a master of quite a few. By that I mean he's done a little bit of everything and seems to have done quite well. He was the lead singer of a punk band called Drunken Boat in the 1980s. During that time, he was also an acclaimed poet and performance artist. He landed a spot on MTV in 1993 as a spoken word poet. These days, he's a renowned visual artist who resides on the St. Mark's Poetry Project board, running workshops for other people who want to discover their poetic side. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know that the St. Mark's Poetry Project was a product of the New York School of Art. Loosely speaking, it's a school of poetry founded somewhere around the 1930s, reaching huge prominence throughout the 1960s and 1970s. The Poetry Project was a space where young poets could experiment and try new forms that diverted from the strict and meticulous verse of classical poetry. It produced poets like Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery, Patti Smith and Eileen Miles, to name but a few. Colby has been very candid when it comes to talking about his influences. He has admitted that the likes of Ashbury and O'Hara were hugely influential on him and his work when he was growing up. And even now, here he is in 2017 describing what made Frank O'Hara's work so special. And one of the things that's amazing about O'Hara, he never really thought of it as uh, his writing as being anything that was sort of elevated or special. It was just part of the fabric of life. And in fact, you can, the poems that he was writing probably right in this room or somewhere <laughs> on the campus, um, you can tell just a distinct difference from the moment he moved to New York City. Um, he immediately, his poetry changed so radically and he became much more of this interiority, sort of putting itself on the city itself and this sort of dialogue between what was happening inside and outside. Mm -hmm. And you're feeling that tension back and forth. The reason I include that quote 
is because of the way Colby references both the everyday quality of O'Hara's poetry and the tension between what was happening outside and what was happening inside in much of his work. This admiration for that style of poetry is, I think, the key to understanding this poem. In this piece, we jump between the moments that Colby is experiencing in his head and the moments that are happening to him while he walks around the city. We slip from inner monologue to external memory constantly. And this kind of back and forth creates a strange kind of stream of consciousness, one that is intensely focused on the normal mundane occurrences of Colby's life. Just a quick note here, I've split the poem into four sections for easy analysis. Here is the first. You'd think the sky would run out of water, but it won't. It just keeps coming down. I need someone to marvel at the breath escaping from me. Do you have a natural resource you prefer to exploit? We start with an immediate use of pathetic fallacy. The shaping of weather to reflect an internal mood or state within a piece of art. We can safely assume that our speaker is Colby, as he once stated that his work often takes inspiration from the real-life events he has experienced. It would appear that whatever Colby is going through seems to be difficult and challenging, as rain is rarely used to signal a happy moment. His opening statement is one of wonder or bewilderment, as he contemplates how it can keep coming down. How can one life go through so much? Such contemplation would not be out of place in any poem. However, in other poems, it might be treated with a moroseness or a note of the somber. We quickly come to realize that in Colby's work, these grand topics are approached in a far more humorous way. Following the mention of rain, the next line establishes one of the poem's key themes. Loneliness. He says, I need someone to marvel at the breath escaping from me. This line is a wish for a witness, but more relatably, a wish for company. The image of the breath escaping him is a rather literal image of exhaustion, but also a great phrase to show the transition from his inner monologue to the outside environment. We are literally moving from inside his body to the city outside. There is a pause here, a question put either to the reader or the anonymous company he is with. Do you have a natural resource you prefer to exploit? Once again, we have a line that operates on a few levels. He could be expressing the fact that he enjoys the attention or company. Other people's attention is his own personal favorite natural resource. He could be referencing the oxygen that has just been used by his lungs. Or, more simply, he could be referencing the mundane small talk that people occasionally reach for when they're stuck for something to say. In this poem, it's rather strange. In real life, we might ask about the weather. Or, do you prefer the bus or the train? It's a moment of panic, stretching to try and find something to fill the silence between two people. And in this way, we come to understand that perhaps Todd Colby is trying to express something to his walking partner. This kind of mundane existence, everyday life, is something that has been praised in Colby's work. John Ashbery once said, The wonder and disappointment of every day in the city of love is Todd Colby's subject. This poem is littered with the everyday. 
many of the references and descriptions are things that we, the reader, encounter over and over in our own lives. This is made very clear in the next section. Does someone ever think of you and turn the channel? How would you ever know? Have you ever zoned out during Downton Abbey? I'm certain of something I'd prefer not to tell you about. Here, two things are established. First of all, the second theme of the poem, ego. Following that, the sense of humour that Colby is famous for finds root within the verse. The reference to Downton Abbey is just a little bit silly, and yet there is a sincerity to it. It is sandwiched between two rather more serious topics. On one side, the fear of being insignificant in another person's affections. To cross someone's mind and then simply be discarded. More importantly, it looks at how we seek validation in what others think of us. On the other side of that, the discomfort of being unable to express something deep to someone we care about. In this moment, it seems to be an insecurity. There is a wonderful blend of the everyday in Downton Abbey and the interior with far more depth in those insecurities. It is why I enjoy Todd Colby's work so much, as this blend is present in much of his verse. That zoning out during Downton Abbey is very relatable. It's something we've all gone through, and it shows that not only do we cross other people's minds and are discarded, but people cross our own, and we do nothing about it. It breaks the notion that we are the victim in a poem, that we have been let down, because we do it ourselves. Our next section cements the previous two themes, and introduces the third and final one. Slow down, you say. But I can already see my breath, and it's only October. Walking with you is making everything watery and spazzed out. Like a movie about sex, where I have sex, and people are all like, he's amazing. We really like his sex style. Suddenly, the internal dialogue ends, marked clearly by the quotation marks of another person talking. This person is trying to soothe him. And so our final theme is established. It is love. Colby has stated that the collection this poem is from, Splash State, was full of love poems. Here he is explaining exactly just how many types of love poem are in the collection. You know, a lot of the, the poems in this book ha deal directly with love. Um, when I was putting together this manuscript, um, I had about 200 poems or so, because it had been a few years since my previous book came out. And um, when Alan and Ben from the Song Cave first approached me about doing a book, I gave them a bunch of poems, and they sort of saw the theme of a lot of love poems that came out of this. So, you know, in the last five years or so, I've you know gone through a divorce, fallen in and out of love. I'm currently in a, a good, stable relationship. Um, and it really came from one morning sitting at my desk and leaving a note for Tara, who this book is dedicated to, um, on her kitchen counter. Um, and just thinking of her in that fashion. And then I later took the poem back and typed it up, and this is the poem as it was written. This woman is now witnessing the toll that something I'd rather not tell you from the previous section is taking on Colby. It seems to come in a physical sense. As I previously stated, it could be an insecurity, or he could be trying to tell this woman how much he cares about her. The realistic elements of the poem compound together 
and scene setting is attempted. We understand now that it's October and it's extremely cold. He can already see his breath. He seems to express surprise at this, showing that perhaps things are moving at a pace he is not so comfortable with. He is in a panic here. There's a touch of chaos about the verse, a frequent characteristic of his work. He can't seem to see the woman clearly. It could be for his love of this woman, he's literally seeing stars, or it could be his panic. The poem veers dangerously close to being a very serious moment, and suddenly, his ego delivers an unusual punchline to break the tension. He talks almost nonsensically about a bizarre movie scene where he is adored by sexual partners and lauded for his prowess in the bedroom. It seems so out of place and is a moment of pure male ego. This dipping of the toe into over-the-top theatrics then develops into full-blown melodrama in the final section. But I digress. Will you please stand up when called upon to tell the audience how wonderful I was in my best moments, like someone in senior management delegating things and being sure of everything but how to stop. I promise I'll make this up to you. I'll write your name on the menu board and people will come into the store all expectant of you. There is a moment where we suspect the speaker is coming to their senses. They state matter-of-factly that they digress. What follows, however, is a further dive down the rabbit hole of melodrama, bordering on farce. He beseeches his companion to tell the audience how wonderful I was in my best moments. The theatrics here are firmly established in this direct referral to an audience. His speech takes on the cadence and characteristics of the final wishes of some wasted away souls on their deathbed. Tell them of my best moments, as if there will never be another. Finally, it is made clear to the audience just how much glee Colby is taking in this silly example. He compares the achievements of his life to that of senior management, a gentleman full of delegation and blustering authority. This is clearly tongue-in-cheek, a mockery of the importance that such figures assign to themselves. It is further testament to the relatability of Colby's poetry, as many of his readers will have had experience with exactly this sort of management. Given his earlier reference to a popular TV show like Downton Abbey, it wouldn't surprise me if he was referencing the likes of Michael Scott or David Brent in this line. Finally, there is the promise to his companion, the testament to his affection. In many other love poems, this would be a grand gesture of atonement, a plea for forgiveness achieved through some Herculean labor, but Colby cannot help himself. His act of atonement is a mockery. He is offered instead to write her name on a chalkboard, in the style of a daily special or deal that one would see in a deli, something that would make others expectant of her. It is the best that Colby has to offer. It is meager, but what he understands. It is comical and not meant to be taken in the least bit literally. And yet there is a sincerity to the over-the-top promise that leaves the reader smiling by the end of the poem. So why this poem? I think that when it comes to love poems and the multitude of forms they take, it's often easy to slip into epic, overreaching grand gestures and make impossible promises. The moon and the stars are offered to the recipients of such poems. 
I think in this poem, Todd Colby has managed to create a love poem for the everyday. In a strange way, the imagery and the pace of the poem almost mimic the silliness that is often present in the flirting that we have with other people. To me, there is nothing better than ending up in a strange and hilarious place in a conversation with someone. A moment where you have to pause and ask yourself, how did we end up here? That feeling, I think, runs through every inch of this poem. Colby does not deny that often we might feel like indulging in these grand professions of love. And yes, we are frequently filled with the unbridled love for a person and that it can almost be impossible to restrain what we want to offer them. However, he will not excuse the ludicrous, often absurd form that such promises might actually take. He will not let his ego overindulge. He refuses to shirk away from the insecurity left by past relationships and downright draws the line at the ridiculous promises we try to make when we know we have made a mistake in our relationship. The love in Todd Colby's poetry is a distinctly human one, filled with flaws and missteps. And for him, that's just fine. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation of the poem, and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, or if you'd like to suggest a poem for me to read on this podcast, send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact me through my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com, where you'll also find the show notes for this week's episode, complete with references. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast. There you can find helpful study guides, quotes, and other bonus content. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Scott Buckley and is used under Creative Commons license. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving me a review on whatever platform you listen on. It really would help me out. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me, and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.